that sound? That sounds good. Thank you. Twitter at all, yes, you know him really well. He is an independent journalist, and he has been doing extensive work over in Ukraine. He's been actually physically in Ukraine, and he has an extensive background in Ukrainian studies, Russian. He has his own podcast. We're going to ask him about that. We're also going to ask him about. We're also going to ask him about some of his activities and what he thinks we should be doing. Um, uh, viewing it from a perspective here in America, what we should know about the situation in Ukraine. So let's see, Terrell, go ahead and say hi. If you can unmute, it's in the bottom right. <laughs> there you go. So let's see, I'm going to add you here to our queue and you'll want to just make sure that you unmute the button before we talk. Also, just to let everybody know, as I've been there we go. I see you now, Terrell. You want to unmute that button. There yeah, you are. Good, Hi. Good. How are you? Good, good. Thanks so much for joining me today. I have so many questions for you, and I'm so excited to have an expert, somebody who's actually been boots on the ground and who can give us some really well-needed perspective about what's truly happening in Ukraine. So I have been over your resume, and I'm really impressed. You have a double master's degree. Is that right? Yes, I do. I That's crazy. To. Now, what are those? What are your studies in? No, okay, so I have a master's in Russian, Ukrainian, Eurasian studies, and the second one is in uh, editorial journalism from the University of Illinois, where I will be speaking uh, next week. Okay, fantastic. So you know your stuff. Are you fluent in Russian? Um, really, conversational. My fluency. I'm going to. I would say by the end of the year, I will be. Okay. Um, so I'm taking. So, but I, I communicate. I've done interviews in um, Russian. Um, what I say, like I'm really fluent, no, not at this point, but uh, right. by the end of the year, I will be, and I'm taking up intensive Ukrainian by uh, this summer. So, I'll, you know, so that, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the best way to learn a language is always just to immerse yourself in it. So I'm sure your Ukrainian is coming along really quickly. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, by the end of the summer, I should be good. Fantastic. Okay, so when did you come back from Ukraine? April 4th. Yeah. April 4th. Okay. Yeah. And before then, how long were you actually over there? Three months. Three uh, months. Yeah, close to three months. But I spent half the year there. Okay. And you went over there as a Fulbright fellow, right? Initially, when you're studying? 2009. Yeah. And then okay. I was there for a year and a half. And afterwards, I come back every, uh, I go back. Start going a couple times a, um, a year, a couple weeks at a time. Then over time, okay. I just I went a month and two months, and it just got to a half a year now. So okay, okay, fantastic. So tell me, as as an American who has not been to see what's happening firsthand, what what do you think um, we need to know as Americans about what is happening over there that you don't think is being covered as well from mainstream media? Well, I think right now the main thing to notice that there is, you know, be, beyond the war and the military, uh, the military invasion, what you see is a pretty much an occupation in a, a genocide of Ukrainian people. I know that there are many legal terms, there are a lot of right. legalities that have to unfold before we can, you know, where, where the international community will will deem it that way. But But Joe Biden uh said as much uh right based on he called it a genocide today see. yeah what, what, what it basically is but the thing about genocide is that it very much 
doesn't start with the violence. It doesn't start with the assault, the assault against women. It doesn't start with children. But it starts off with his language. And so for years, Russian President Vladimir Putin has been describing Ukrainians in terms that I would consider to be equivalent to white trash, right? So okay. he, he, he talks about them as, hey, you have no nation, you have no culture, you are right. essentially Russians who don't under, who, who gun beside yourselves. And so this is not something that started on February 24th. This has been a segregation of our entire people over years. And this war has culminated to that point, which is to uh, change the regime of Ukraine, which is not going to happen, which was attempted during the first week of the war, um, was met with fierce military resistance by the Ukrainians. And so what's happening right. now is you have this complete destruction. He's going to destroy as many cities as, he's, as, cities as he can, turns them into rubble. And so he, so that's what's happening right now. And I think the main thing is we definitely ought to focus on obviously the the war and the atrocities. But this is so that that that's the the most critical piece in that people are dying. But the why is the most important. Which that's what I was going to ask you. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you because we can't take anything Putin says at face value. We know that mm -hmm. he's just spreading propaganda. So, what do you believe Putin's end game is? Does he? I, he says he only wants the Donbas region because he's reclaiming it and he's using a lot of his propaganda for that. But what do you think his end game really is here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so basically, what you see right now is there is. People trying to guess what's in Putin's brain to me is, I don't know what type of game you'll call it, but to me, it, it's in certain ways, it's a waste of time because it changes. He has no accountability. But look, okay. what, what the, the, the end game, I'm not, I think it's, it's destruction, it's destabilization. It's if I can't integrate you into Ruski Mir, which is the Russian world, right. I'll just flatten your, I'll just try to destabilize your country to the point where no one wants to invest in it. And right. so that's what you see with Mariupol, with Kharkiv, with Kherson, you, you in these other towns that 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 are in the suburbs of Kiev. And so right. he, he projected this message of we are brothers. We are um, united with Ukrainians. We have a shared history. We're essentially the same people. When the Ukrainians did not believe that then his focus changed on, we will just destroy you. So one of the things that Putin said to Pre uh, French President Macron was uh, he made a very crude joke that, um, that, that essentially translates as, well, you know, I'm just going to bed you and I know you don't want to do it, but you basically just need to accept it and it's okay. Right. Which right. basically it was like a it was a crude was a great joke, right? So okay. he, you know, and, and it's nothing to joke about, but he made it into one because that's right. who he is, right? You know, okay. and so and so but but that language is important um because this is how he thinks about the Ukrainian people. If you do not integrate, we will destroy you. And what you see in Belarus, for example, I can't say that Belarus is totally oriented into Russia because um, it's only Victor, um, it's only Yushchenko who is Putin's puppet. But 
basically, if you are somebody who does not want to be in Russia's orbit, you will pay for you know you'll, you'll pay for it with blood. And so right. that is so that definitely is the end game at this point. Well, that leads me to my next question, which is, in your opinion, with your experience. I know that, you know, Americans are, are really fearful of the concept of Putin having nuclear weapons and the concept of this next World War Three type of thing breaking out. So how close do you think Putin is to possibly exploring using nuclear weapons? And if he did, how do you think he would go about doing that initially? Would it be another attack on Ukraine? Yeah, so the thing about nuclear weapons, we've never had a nuclear war, so no one, regardless of regardless of how people talk about the scenarios, we really don't know what a nuclear war looks like. And so he talks right. about tactical weapons. We don't know once they deploy what type of damage they will cause. We know the number of, we, we know the number of kilotons right. um, that are on and the war. And how far it will go. And who it will no, no right? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But here's the thing. No one knows, because the thing about a nuclear fallout, depending on how big the warhead is on a nuclear weapon, that's under the, you know we we can guess, but it's relatively unknown because the first this this, use, this term tactical weapon nuclear weapons is a new one because the whole idea is that we're not going to deploy we're not going to fire an ICBM an intercontinental ballistic missile or a submarine launch ballistic missile right which you know with with that has as many as. 300, 400 kilotons of yield on it okay. uh, versus okay. Hiroshima, where it's like, you know, 15, 20, 30, whatever, whatever the case may be. I mean, okay. I'm getting, getting kind of into the weeds, but here's, here's the bottom line. Okay. No one really knows, you know, what in many respects. Like. Yeah, no one, but also Putin is using nuclear weapons to blackmail Ukraine. Um, and so I think that he bluffed because the thing about it is that the, the West has made it clear if, if Putin uses a nuke even against Ukraine, then they will retaliate that retaliation from the right. West. We're not sure what that would be, right. but you know, he uses this to blackmail the West from intervening from its atrocities in Ukraine. But as far as what that would look like, no one obviously knows. Nobody knows. And I have a question about sanctions. So mm-hmm. every day it seems like um, we hear more about applying more sanctions, applying more sanctions. My question to you is, why wouldn't we have applied the most stringent sanctions that we could have immediately? Why did we hold back on that? Is there a detriment for Americans? Is there a reason why we're holding back? And have we applied all of the sanctions we can? What's left? So... The sanctions that we saw that are enacted right now came after the first three weeks. So I think when you talk about why weren't they done sooner, Ukrainians would say these sanctions should have been initiated in 2014. And, you know, why they, so why weren't they enacted in 2014 as opposed to three weeks after the war in 2020? you know, I think it goes, you know, the simple question, the simple answer is, it's not one, it's, they're not under Article 5. And so we'll just let them bleed out and just write letters saying that we condemn them. Because keep in mind that in Georgia, when Russia invaded, they didn't carry out the same brutality as they're doing in Ukraine. But right. um, I think from Russia's perspective, they can do what they want. The West is not going to really hurt us really bad. They're not going to respond um, right. tough. But in two, but this is the first time that the West took a strong, robust reaction. I mean, Obama started it in 2014. People talk about it was a weak response. I think it's a little bit more nuanced than that, um, which is another topic. But the sanctions right now are 
I'd say at a scale from one to 10, there are 7.5. Okay. Um, what makes them a 10 is completely sanctioning their energy sector, Russia's energy sector. But the problem is that- um, It would make our 60, prices skyrocket. Well, well, 60, per, 60 plus percent of all Europe's oil gas dependency comes from Russia. And it would take several years for them to create an infrastructure to, right. um, to divest from Russia and get it from other sources. And so, even if the Europe, because it's more of a European issue as far as the sanctions on the energy sector go, as opposed to America, because we don't import a lot of uh, Russian uh, energy. And so okay. we, we don't, yeah, so that's, so that's the issue. So basically it's more of the US cooperating and trying to work with the Europeans. And so they have their own kind of, you know, they have their own energy interests in, in, in that regard. And so it's just a bit trickier. And so even if you said today, okay, we're going to sanction the, we're going to think we're, we're going to apply sanctions against Russia's energy sector for it to really take effect, it's going to take a couple years. Okay, so we're at about a 7.5 on a scale of 10 for sanctions, but we're really kind of at the top of the amount of sanctions that people are willing to do at this point. Would you say that's right? Can you repeat? I didn't hear you. So we're at about a 7.5 out of 10, but it seems that we're really kind of at the top of our level in terms of what we're willing to do at this point, because anything further would be just too detrimental to the energy sources in, for Europe. Is that right? Yeah, but there's another thing, too. So there, another issue that a lot of people don't talk about is America. So America has more legislation like the West has more legislation challenging kleptocracy. Mm-hmm. You know, America does really well as far as, well, specifically America, we have a lot of legislation uh, that, that's really geared towards stopping kleptocracy, but America is the, one of the most aiders and abettors of kleptocratic behavior Okay. than many people in the world. So for example, a lot of Russian oligarch money is offshore in real estate. It's okay. offshore in Western financial systems. After right. the, so, so, so one of the things that the KGB, um, the intelligence services were good at during the Soviet Union and then the intelligence services of the Russian Federation after the Union fell was that they understood these loopholes in capitalism. And so the Soviets were talking all this trash about, you know, we're anti-capitalist, blah, 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 blah. But the, one of the things they understood was how to exploit it. And, okay. one, and, and, so, and so one of the things that's really in the way of of economic sanctions here is greed and capitalism and so as long as yeah you know think about Gerhard Schroeder the former chancellor in Germany prior to Angela Merkel he is on a board of a major gas company in Russia right think about that the former chancellor of Germany arguably the most powerful European country in Europe is on a Russian gas company I mean he's pretty much bought and sold right so now, you don't have Americans doing that at the highest levels, but what you do have is a situation whereby the reason why you can't go further because that next 2.5 is based mm-hmm. on how willing are you to put your capitalistic greed to the side in order to make right. a moral judgment? Because you want to do this without feeling pain and it's not going to happen. You know, it's, it's kind of right. like <laughs> issues here. In the United, I mean, really, I mean, it's kind of like issues here in the United States. Like you want to, it's like talking about racism, trying to have a, have, have a conversation about race without hurting people's feelings. Right. You're going to hurt people's feelings. 
people right. are going to feel some type of way and that's the same thing no i mean like and you're going and it's the same thing with 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 this uh with sanctions people are going to hurt there are going to be times where europeans are going to have to worry about whether or not they're going to get heat but do you want to be enslaved to russian oil that's really the question you're going to suffer and no one wants to do it and people are trying to find these foolproof ways where they don't feel pain and that's right. just not going to happen it's not and that's unrealistic and until people confront and get ready for that then you're never going to get to that tent. Well, and that leads me to another question I have, which is, what do you think the Russians' most detrimental actions have been so far, both for Ukraine and then for the world that's reeling from the actions in Ukraine? I didn't hear you. What did you say? What have, you, what have Russians' most detrimental actions been so far for the people of Ukraine and then resoundingly for the people of the world who are going to be feeling the actions in Ukraine? Most detrimental actions against, you know, uh, against Ukrainians by Russians have been the rapes and have been the the genocidal behavior um, right. of, of killing families, killing children. Um, that's the main thing in breaking and in, in, in destroying cities and tearing them, treating them into rubble. Um, and so, to what level is Putin targeting civilians as an attack plan? I know he says he's not, but clearly he is. What ha- is it? A hundred percent? Is it? What do you think about that? No, he's totally uh, targeting civilians because he can't beat the ground forces. That's the whole thing. They're, they're unable to defeat Ukraine on a ground game. And so what he's doing is that he's attacking civilians and, and Russians are fighting from civilian positions because they know that the Ukrainians are not going to target civilian places because the Ukrainian military has a moral, has morality that the Russians do not. So, you know, it, it's, so that's the major thing in regards to how it's impacting the rest of the world. Right. Okay. You know, it, it, it's go, you're going to say something. Go ahead. No, no, no. Please keep going. Yeah. So, so basically, in regards to the rest of the world, I can't say that the rest of the you know, I wouldn't say the rest of the world has suffered much in comparison to Ukrainians. Um, I think the residual effects have been creating stability and stressing. You know, with my with my with with, my, with, with uh, refugee migration into um the rest of europe but i mean they, they they have the capacity to handle that but i think the main thing is that the ukrainians are suffering atrocities okay. that psychologically they're going to be dealing with for uh for for generations right and i was personally kind of shocked at how absolutely ineffective nato was or how they ch- how ineffective they chose to be in this situation was that something that shocked you at all or were you surprised at how little was done once the russian aggression started well ukraine is not under article 5 right so nato is not doesn't have any obligation whatsoever to support them as far as the ground troops but what right. they do, but 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 what they do have is they can send military hardware. So what they so so NATO, they are the what they're most guilty what they're most guilty of is being slow to respond. But the result did that surprise is, you? Did that surprise you how slow they were to respond? Because they weren't because they really didn't respond sufficiently enough in two thousand fourteen and two thousand you know and with Ukraine in two thousand and eight with Georgia. So no. Right. Okay. That's not the issue at all. But but the thing is, is that NATO NATO has been pretty good in regards to providing, um, you know, the, you know, with, with in support of anti tank, um, you know, any 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 anti tank weaponry. Um, they've been supportive in regards to kind of like that, you know, low altitude. Um, 
shoulder launch missiles that take down airplanes um, and other, right. you know, and other aircraft that are that fly at low altitude. So they've been good in that response. So I, I wouldn't, in this instance, I would give NATO a, a solid B in a that B. regard. Okay. Yeah, I would give it a B, but it could be an A because what what, um, what Ukraine needs is anti-aircraft, um, anti-aircraft defenses. They need... Um, they, they need they need they need missile systems that can target uh, you know Russian destroyers. Well, and why is NATO not not providing that? What do you think their uh, well, their reasons are? Okay, so that, that's a complex question. So, <laughs> I mean, okay, so with with the time I have, so listen. So here so here's how it's going. So here's how that works. So let's just say the Patriot missile system, which is American platform. I forgot how many. I forgot how much time it takes to train someone on how to use that. But that's not a short-term weapon. That's right. not a short-term platform. The issue right. is tactically the time say, it's okay, going to take to get people ready to go. Uh, well, well, more specifically, if we train them on this platform and say Poland, Estonia, whatever, and we say, okay, we're going to transfer this platform into Ukraine, and the Russians hit the transport. Okay, then that's a political decision. That's, it's not only a military um, hit, it's a political decision. If they hit that transport going into Ukraine, how do we respond? Even if American right. or NATO member soldiers don't die, what if the Russian, what if Putin is bold enough to hit the transport once, you know, even if it's in route going through Poland? How do you respond to that? And so there are so many variables in that. That it's just, it just becomes tricky. So it's not that NATO members don't want them to have these platforms. It's, it's just, just not of, as simple as it appears. It's not just it, giving it, it them never the is, weapons. No. Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And then what do you think America could be doing to help more that we're not doing? So just like I said right now, I was on the Hill this morning talking to some congressional staffers and telling them if I were a policymaker, if I were a lawmaker, somebody who had the power to vote, <clears throat> on whether or not to authorize hundreds of millions of dollars, where the case may be, towards Ukraine. Right. I would get, you know, the, what, what the American government can do and what people in Congress can do is continue to send military aid to Ukraine so they can fight, so they, so they can fight Russia. Because ultimately, you don't need an economically unstable country or, or you don't need a, a country whose security is unstable, bordering a NATO EU right. partner. And now, so when you say amazing. aid, are you talking money? Are you talking weapons? Are you talking both? Both. 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 Okay. both. So, so, so basically, you know, there are a lot of, okay, finally, the, and as far as economic, yeah, they need economic um, recovery because there are some cities that are, that, that are so destroyed that they can't do it by themselves. And the key thing is sending aid that they don't have to pay back because, right. And, and the Europeans They'll just be really, buried, right? Yeah, but but the Europeans need to lead in this because you know as much as I support Ukraine as an American, this is in Europe's backyard, and they should be doing a lot of the heavy lifting. But I think the problem is that they're too afraid of Putin, and they have their own economic greed interests that are preventing them from taking the lead. Right, right. 
Okay, well, I know we only have a little bit more time because you have to get going, but I have a couple of quick questions for you. So I know you're really active on Twitter. I'm really active on Twitter. What can people do on social media who are standing with Ukraine who want to help and they want to help facilitate getting them more of these things? What can we do to push our government? Would you say we should keep asking um, our representatives and our senators to keep sending aid? What do you think would be most effective for us on Twitter to keep pushing for? I think that if you show people writing to their senators and their Congress and you know, in their congressional in their congressional representatives, people don't think that that helps, but it really does help. Um, right. So many of these, so you know, because you remember, if you're thinking about Congress members, people in the House, it's a district by district thing, and so it's a bit more. So the the House people are a little they go district by district, whereas senators do the whole state. I'm not explaining this to you. I'm, you know, whatever, right. you know this sure, obviously. of course, but, but, of course. But, but, yeah. but, but the issue, but, the, but I'm saying that because they do care about making votes and taking actions that they people will care about. And so if they see 10 to 15 letters, a, you know, a day right. talking about Ukraine, that's going to be at the top of their heads because most people don't engage their their members of Congress, and when they see any type of engagement, it, it, it puts it at the top because it, it puts it gives the staffers um, a reason to bring up these points during congressional meetings, and it just gives them more to to, to work with. So it's very helpful. Well, and I know that you're doing a fundraising um, campaign with Vess from Ukraine. Is that right? Indigenous Vess. Do am I doing it with who now? <laughs> indigenous vests. You're you're selling those Ukrainian indigenous vests to help raise funds for the movement. Tell me about that. Oh, those vests. Okay, so the so so the so 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 the vests are um that's a resale business that I'm working on, and so that's something I'm going to start in the next month or so. And okay, I'm donating 30% of all sales to Ukrainian charities. But that's just something I'm doing individually. I tend to like clothes. And so okay. that's an initiative. Yeah, so that was I was teasing out that, that jacket vest. Um, uh-huh. But I'm going to make a later announcement for that. But I'm also doing other things with folks online. I'm sharing uh, lists of Ukrainian charities that I think would be worthwhile for people to support. But those vests, I'm going to, you know, once the sales get full, you know, get into full swing, I'm going to each for each sale donate thirty percent of the. So, how should people check in with you or follow your work or get involved to help? Would you say Twitter is the best place for people to check in on what you're doing? Yeah, Twitter is definitely the best place where people. And what's your handle? My handle sure? is Terrell. My handle is Terrell. My handle. My handle is Terrell. <laughs> J star T E R R E L L J star S T A R R. And so that is the best way for people to find me not only on Twitter, but on Instagram. Great. So it's the same handle. And you know, I have been reading your Twitter feed recently, kind of, you know, getting ready for this interview. And I have to say, what I really like about it is how you combine who you are and your personal um, thoughts and attributes with the work you're doing. And I think that's part of the new wave journalism. I think a lot of us do that. We sort of, you know, it's less formal. We tell people who we are. And I really like that about your Twitter feed. So I suggest that everybody check it out. Yeah, thank you so much.
thank you so much for coming on Terrell. I really appreciate it. And I hope you'll come back. Thank you. I'll definitely come back. Okay, thanks. I'm going to keep going, ladies and gentlemen, and we're going to keep talking. Um, moreover, I wanted to reemphasize what Terrell was talking about with, um, with um, talking about calling your reps and calling your senators. What's really critical to understand about this, like whenever we're on Twitter, and I know a lot of you listening, you know, tend to be Twitter followers. So whenever you're on Twitter and, and we say, contact your reps, contact your senators, we're not talking about necessarily tweeting at them. Um, we're talking about actually calling them, calling them on the phone, not stopping until you get a human person voice. And the reason for that is that the aides who work in those offices who take your phone calls, they have to record every single call. They have to record what the constituent was asking for, uh, what their stance is, what they said, because each office will typically reply in a letter form. So what Terrell was saying was, you know, you need to write a letter. Writing a letter is fantastic because that means they have to look at it. Somebody has to review it. And somebody in that office has to relay that somebody that is voting for that representative or that senator feels this way and wants this strongly. And then your representative or your senator will know that a vote is on the line and that will, that will put pressure on them. Another good thing to do is when when topics are hitting all at once and things are trending, sometimes it's good to flood the switchboards with the phone calls. Um, but again, unless you get a person online, so calling to leave a message isn't going to work. You're going to want to wait until you can get an actual person on the line. And sometimes that means calling locally. So I always tell people right now just to get ready for everything we're going to need for the midterms and then coming up for the presidential election, you're going to want to Google um, both of your representatives, or sorry, your representative, you're going to want to Google both of your senators, and you're going to want to get all of their local phone numbers, because those offices are more likely to be taking live calls and to be speaking with constituents, because they know that you're calling within the state. So that's really important to note, too. So again, you can follow Terrell at, at Terrell, T-E-R-R-E-L-L-J-Star, S-T-A-R-R on Twitter. I think he uses the same handle on Colin, on Instagram, and all of his social media. He's a really great resource to get, you know, some independent journalistic news on what's happening on the ground. And he's incredibly educated and informed on not only what's happening, but what the implications of these different um, things mean. So he's somebody who's able to sort of connect the dots and put the pieces together. If anybody has any questions for me, Terrell had to leave, but if anybody has any questions for me, you're more than welcome to call in. I'm going to keep chatting for a few more minutes. I hope everybody's doing well, having a great week. Um, another thing I wanted to mention was Shiro will now be moving to Wednesdays in the afternoon. So I hope that you'll be able to join us. I think that's more, more of a consistent day for everybody. And I hope to see you all 3 o'clock Eastern, whatever time that is for you, Central and Pacific. I hope to see you in the middle of the week every week. We're going to be here each week, and we're going to be doing a different show on a different topic. I'm going to try to be interviewing more guests to give us more information um, so that we can really not only know what's going on, but know how we can best utilize our social media networks to um, really get in there and affect some change. So I'm going to take a call here from Liz. Hi, Liz. Go ahead and unmute your mute button in the bottom right. 
and you're up. Hello. Um, first, I want to say thanks so much for having um, Terrell on. Um, he, uh, I agree. He's he's really a wealth of information and he's fantastic, and isn't he? Yeah, he is. Yeah. Um, I yeah, he's pretty amazing. Um, and now I just forgot what I was going to ask you. <laughs> That's okay. I can tap dance for you for a minute. So oh, that would Liz be. Liz is trying to remember her, her question. To it was probably regarding Ukraine, or it was. I I missed some parts of it. Um. So, what was your what was your biggest takeaway from? Um. I I mean I I heard the the discussion about um why. So many people want us to send um, weapons and and you know helicopters and and MIGs and all that kind of stuff. And um, I know that it was he explained it really well that it takes time to train mm -hmm. um, the people in Ukraine. It would take time to train their military, so it wouldn't be a really 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 quick fix. But other than right. contacting our representatives and that, do you? Do you have any thoughts on other things that we well, can my biggest, do? My biggest takeaways from what he was saying about NATO, and, and I thought this was really great because I've been in the camp of, you know, NATO hasn't done enough. They didn't mobilize quickly. You know, I, 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 I'm not a fan, but here's what I've sort of realized after speaking with Terrell. You know, the, they've pretty much done as much as that. Yes, they, they acted a little bit after the fact, but everybody expected that based on how they acted previously. And what's really left for them to do involves a system of, um, you know, different equipment, different high technology and training systems that really can't be put in place in any kind of time frame that would really you know, help them out in the near future. It's not going to be as helpful because it's going to take so long to get everybody trained. Now, I'm one of those people that's like, well, if that's where we're headed, why don't we get started on that right now? And why would we wait? I can see how there's an argument for why, you know, that gives NATO a defense and why it doesn't. The other takeaway I got from him um, in terms of what the U.S. can do is just, you know, continuing to send uh, money and weapons. And I think it was really interesting that he was saying that, that that the brunt of this or the bulk of the support should really be coming from Europe on this. Because while it is going to affect the entire world or affect the entire world, it is really on their doorstep and it's in their best interest to be putting everything they've got into it. And it shouldn't really be on America to be carrying most of that burden. And I think that's a really good reminder for everybody too. Okay, so um, Liz, did that answer your question? Do you have any more it questions? Did. For me? It did. Okay, great. It Thanks so my much. Question. You're welcome. Have a good Wednesday. Okay, everybody, this was really fun, and I really enjoyed talking with you. And I hope that you'll tune in again on Wednesday at three o'clock, where we will be solidifying this time here on Shiro and come hang out with us again. Thanks so much.